Chapter Eight of Gargoyles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Gargoyles by Ben Hecht. Chapter Eight. Mrs. Basine was embarrassed by the arrival of her friend Tom Ramsey. He had been a friend of her husband, and a rumor had become current that he was now courting her. She denied this with indignation. To herself she admitted she liked to be alone with him. He was a sour-minded man with a liver-red face, a patrician nose, and the look of a man of importance. But he was too thin and too short to live up to this look. In the presence of others he usually felt into a silence, unless one of the two or three subjects in which he felt himself an authority came up. These subjects were things that had to do with advertising, effective copy, effective display, prices, results. Mr. Ramsey was in the advertising business. Mrs. Basine's embarrassment at his arrival was caused by her sympathy for the man and her resentment of his weakness. She knew exactly what would happen. Tom Ramsey would sit through the evening, scrupulously polite to everyone, saying, "'Yes, yes, quite right. Oh, of course. That's absolutely right. Indeed, I agree with you.' For the first few minutes he would impress everyone as a man of character and intelligence, but gradually this impression would fade and people would stop talking to him and eventually ignore him altogether in the conversation. Why this happened, Mrs. Basine could never determine. But it did, and it always hurt her. Mr. Ramsey, smiling exuberantly through the introduction, his thin body alive in the slightly overheated room, would in an hour become Mr. Ramsey sitting glassy-eyed and polite in a corner, his liver-red face holding with difficulty a grimace of enthusiastic attentiveness. He would make sporadic starts, trying to recover something. When the talk grew boisterous and everyone was making puns and delivering himself of bouncing sarcasms, Ramsey would try to become part of the scene in a way that always startled the company. He would come to life with mysterious suddenness and hurl a jest into the common pot. His manner, however, focused attention on himself rather than his words. In back of the drollery he offered would be a desperation, in fact, sometimes a sense of fury. People would stare at him for an instant, thinking, what an odd, impossible man, and in their contemplation forget to laugh at his remark, forget even to answer it, and he would be left stranded in a silence, a conversational castaway. A moment later he would collapse, sit glowering in his chair, looking angrily at the carpet. This was painful to Mrs. Basine, since she had grown to understand him. When they were alone, Ramsey became a different man. He talked to her usually about people he had met in her house. At such times he was master of caricature. Their absurdities, pompousness, banalities, hypocrisies, took grotesque outline in his words. His method was unvarying. 
it was based upon a crude vicious skepticism inspired in turn by a fanatic resentment of success in others he seemed determined always to prove to his own and her satisfaction that despite their pretensions people were no more successful than he his nature seemed unable to tolerate the thought of superiors at the same time people he encountered particularly in the Basine home, managed always to override him, to reduce him to silence, to deflate him. He would retire into himself, protesting viciously at the injustice of this phenomenon, and while he sat in silence, he would seek to wipe out the consciousness of his own inferiority by attacking with contempt the people around him. He would sit belittling and ridiculing the company to himself until he had hypnotized himself with a conviction of their general worthlessness and inferiority. Bolstered up by this treacherous conviction, he would come suddenly to life with a grotesque sense of magnitude in his mind. He was a giant among pygmies, a Socrates among clowns. Who were these numbskulls and four-flushers that they thought they were better than he was? He would show them. He would step forth and by a single gesture, a scintillant phrase, reduce them to their proper place. And the company would find itself staring for an instant at a thin, little man with a wild look in his eyes and a snarling quiver in his voice, saying something not quite intelligible usually an involved pun or a tardy comment on some issue under discussion the intensity of the sullen-faced little man with the patrician nose embarrassed them for the moment not as much as it did mrs basine whose heart would almost break at the spectacle but enough to make them feel it were best to ignore this curious mr ramsay and not let on what a fool he somehow made of himself Ramsey's indignation toward people, his sour skepticism of their values, was his futile way of reassuring himself of his own worth. Futile because he had no conviction of this worth. When he sat denouncing in silence the talkers around him, ridiculing and belittling them, it was merely a less painful outlet for the contempt he had of himself. He had been since his youth ridden by this inner feeling that he was a fool, a weakling, not quite a man. It had started in his boyhood when the nickname Sissy had been attached to him. His high-pitched voice, his thin body, and his unboyish modesty had earned him the name. As he grew older, the fact that he did not care for girls as other youths did and that he sometimes played with them as if he were a girl himself, had not escaped the keen, cruel eyes of his companions. The name Sis Ramsey had stuck. In order to convince these companions of his masculinity, he had thrown himself with violence into their roughest games. In high school, he had sought to establish himself as a hardened sinner, a drinker and a tough citizen. Despite his slight body, he had developed into a creditable athlete. More than that, he had become known as a fellow who would fight at the drop of a hat. His fiery temper became a byword. 
but all these masculine or seemingly masculine attributes were part of his effort to prove that despite his somewhat odd voice and his equally odd indifference toward girls he was a man when he left high school and started in the offices of the mckay advertising company the name sissy had dropped from him he had no longer to contend with the keen cruel eyes of boy companions men were content to accept him at whatever value he chose to place on himself as far as his character was concerned the struggle instead of abating however only increased it removed itself from the external combat of his boyhood to an internal complication and became the basis of the feeling of inferiority which shaped his life this inner knowledge he cherished that he was inferior to people was founded on the conviction that he was impotent or at least nearly impotent that he could never marry and have children like other men his mind refused to acknowledge this fact and thus instead of finding the comparatively harmless exit of regret it permeated his entire thought with the word inferior inferior ramsey kept himself desperately blind to the cause of this permeation he concentrated on the detached word inferior and belabored it with untiring fury there was another secret one that went deeper than the hidden conviction of impotency in the indignation which continually filled his mind the hideous secret that lived almost within grasp of his understanding was conveniently clouded it was the secret that his lack of vigor a fact in itself that he sometimes contemplated was caused by a still deeper thing a thing that never reached any clearer articulation than a shudder they had called him sissy as a boy and he had not changed with age he had been able to repress the impulses that sought to turn him toward men instead of women for companionship he had repressed them by the ruse of convincing himself he was an ascetic it was moreover an attitude which could find outlet he could devote himself to the continual denunciation of others developing into a sour cynical choleric man of fifty a vindictive unpleasing personality mrs basine herded her guests into the dining room ramsey's presence preoccupied her she found herself watching him as a mother might look after a sickly child the intimacy that had grown between her and her dead husband's friend had been too gradual to trace it had started when mrs basine had sat one evening in the midst of a company similar to this and thought poor man he jumps around like that and acts queerly because he's ashamed of himself he's ashamed of not being what he wants to be she did not quite understand what this meant but she felt herself suddenly close to the man after having thought it he began to seek her company alone and more and more to use her as an audience for his ruse of transferring his self-rage into a critical indignation of others a realization of ramsey's character had stirred a pity in her and out of this pity she was careful not to let him see it 
she went to the extreme of pretending a blindness toward his shortcomings and of accepting him for the thing he tried to make himself out to be a giant among pygmies she would agree with him in his attacks upon others second his vicious caricaturing and appear always impressed by his desperate skepticism ramsay as a result had come to regard her as the one person with whom he had ever felt at ease during his life mrs basine was a woman who understood him that is one who was completely deceived by him in her presence the creature he struggled unsuccessfully to become the masquerade of magnificence which his inferiority sought futilely to assume in her presence these became realities he would swagger before her deride her browbeat her and the rage which bubbled everlastingly in him would have respite his mind seemed to uncloud and his talk would grow actually clever some of his caricatures bringing an authentic laugh from her but the widow as a rule would sit listening to him watching his swagger her heart lacerated by the poignant things it sensed it was as if he were a little boy dressed up in an indian suit and emitting war whoops and she must sit by and pretend real horror of his juvenile make-believe as if he were someone who would drop dead with anguish in the midst of his laughter if she were to say aloud what was in her mind oh you poor man i'm sorry for you i am so ashamed for you she did not understand why despite these things she felt a thrill of pleasure when she found herself alone with him her pity for the man seemed a pleasant excitement it gave her a sense of intimacy toward him she admitted this to herself but wondered about it there had been one evening that remained confusedly in her mind he had seemed unusually buoyant she recalled after it was over his cleverness had actually diverted her his caricatures of judge smith and mrs gilchrist and even her own son she had felt a certain truth in the distorted descriptions he gave of her friends then without warning he had grown violently excited she had watched him with a fear in her heart a warning to her that he was going to say something she remembered him walking up and down the room saying the trouble with you like with most people my dear lady is that you don't understand things you look at things through a fog you don't see through the pretenses of people your brain isn't active it's merely receptive it doesn't question and what's the result his voice had become high-pitched you live your lives among lies that's what you do lies lies you thrive on lies your friends are lies your thoughts everything take me now take me my case i'll tell you something you don't understand just by the way of proof i'll tell you something his voice had broken off overcome by excitement he was walking up and down in front of her his eyes staring wildly he was going to say something something about himself and for a moment she had sat cringing inside why had she been afraid 
perhaps because he had looked so wildly around him, like someone trying to escape. But he had grown silent and dropped exhausted into a chair. She tried not to look at him because he was trembling, and he had gone away ten minutes later. He had kept away for two weeks, and then returned, and their relations had resumed as if nothing had happened. Her mind tingled with curiosity, but a fear restrained her. She somehow had not dared ask the question, "'What were you going to tell me about yourself?' But she remembered that it had seemed for a moment as if he were going to escape, that he had looked like a man on the verge of ridding himself of an incubus. Her guests were getting along famously. Everyone seemed pleased, happy. They were chattering and laughing for hardly no reason at all. Mrs. Bazine had no liking for the people at her table. She despised Mrs. Gilchrist, resented Aubrey. The judge gave her a faint feeling of repulsion. Henrietta was a simpleton. Fanny irritated her with her continual blushes and sensitive innocence. Doris was too silent and always brooding. And even George, he somehow failed to convince her, although she desired to be convinced. But all of them together were nice, like a pleasing combination of colors. People belonged together. Alone they had faults. But when they came together and forgot themselves, they were nice. She felt proud of having them at her table, because there were so many of them. They were nice people when they were like this, just talking, not arguing or saying things that convinced her somehow that they were wrong things. Under the table the little comedies of the day were playing a furtive sequel. Henrietta, sitting next to Basine, was shyly pressing her knee against his. Fanny had reached out her foot until it rested against an ankle she fancied belonged to Aubrey. For a few minutes she failed to connect the attentiveness of Judge Smith, his paternal banter, with her activity under the table. But the suspicion slowly arrived. Her eyes calculated the position of the judge's legs, and, blushing, she withdrew her foot. She noticed that Aubrey sought her face when she wasn't looking, and that Keegan was talking with a blurred politeness to Mrs. Gilchrist. Doris, sitting next to Mr. Ramsey, felt annoyed. He was continually asking her what she wanted, passing her salt shakers and bread plates, and conducting himself as if she were a helpless child under his care. Mrs. Gilchrist, as the first conversational flush inspired by the food subsided, launched into a detailed description of the plans for the coming fete talking in a precise, emotionless voice. "'I was saying,' Basine's voice emerged in a silence that followed Mrs. Gilchrist's talk, "'I was saying that people are easy to get along with if you understand them and they understand you. I had a case in court the other day where a woman was suing a man for breach of promise. He had proposed marriage to her, and then, without reason, broke his pledge. The woman was my client. Murmurs of, how awful, that must have been interesting, arose, 
Basine nodded sagely. He had, without knowing why, started improvising the narrative, inventing its details with a creditable dramatic and legal talent. There had been no such case, client, or denouement, but he continued unconscious of this fact in his desire to tell the story. The man, of course, was a rascal, an unscrupulous rascal. The girl, my client, a charming, innocent young thing, had believed him. He had courted her passionately, or, I should say, assiduously. I couldn't understand how any man, after giving his word and asking a girl to marry him, could possibly be rogue enough to do what he had done. So, during a recess in the case, I sought the fellow out. His name was Jones. We had quite a talk. Basine paused. What happened? Fanny exclaimed. I wish you'd tell us more about your work than you do, George. It's so interesting. Yes, go on, Mrs. Gilchrist commanded. Basine hesitated. His improvisation seemed to have come to an end. He was, mysteriously, at a loss as to how to make the lie turn out. But, inspired by the attention of the table, he resumed, "'Well, of course a lawyer must be first of all faithful to his client.' He paused again. He had almost decided to end the fiction by explaining that, on investigation, he had found the man to be right, and that the defense the man had given him privately of his actions had caused him to withdraw from the case. But this would sound quixotic, unreal. There would have to be explanations. Why had he started the lie? To give it that ending so that... He smiled a sudden appreciation of what he was doing, trying to excuse his jilting of Henrietta, an event not far off if she persisted in holding him to the thingamabob foolishness. But he went on, this sometimes prejudices an attorney against his opponent. But I found this time that all prejudice was warranted. The man was a thorough rascal. It had been his practice to propose marriage to girls, innocent girls, of course, and he had several times managed to take advantage of their faith in him and ruin them. Fanny averted her eyes. Mrs. Gilchrist stared with an uncomprehending frown at the talker. The judge permitted a grimace of distaste to pass over his face as he murmured, "'The cad? Yes, sir, men are cads.' "'My client won,' resumed Basine with modesty, and was awarded five thousand dollars by the jury." but the law could not give her back the happiness this scoundrel had snatched from her. Had he, had he accomplished his purpose with her? Aubrey inquired, aloofly interested in the plot details of the narrative. No, fortunately, Basine answered. But look at him now, free, although found guilty, free to continue his tactics. He paused, confused. Henrietta was beaming at him, her eyes wide with admiration. 
he felt he should have given it the other ending and cursed himself silently for what he had done he had only made it worse when he had meant to tell a story that would help matters and make her understand mrs basine regarded her son unhappily she was convinced he was lying because he usually mentioned the big cases he had and he had never before referred to any jones suit but she was unable to understand why anyone should lie without cause and after a moment of doubt her son's stern face and positive manner managed to convince her again he wasn't lying basine as the others took up the discussion of the narrative dropped his hand to his side and furtively pressed it against henrietta's knee at this sensation of physical contact a feeling of relief came to him in the sensual thrill this contact aroused he buried the discomfort of the words running through his head she thinks i'm going to marry her damn it damn it he was startled when glancing at her in the midst of his daring excursion under the table he noticed her smiling coolly and primly at aubrey who was talking will you have some of this mr ramsey's voice protruded through the silence several eyes turned toward him as if he were about to take up the burden of the talk mrs basine interrupted quickly what was that book you told me about mr gilchrist last month she asked aubrey looked up inquiringly i mean your father the elder gilchrist blinked and seemed to peer into the depths of his memory i don't remember he said, clearing his throat. They were the first words he had spoken since he had said, Thank you, thank you, and sat down in a corner of the Basine library. His wife stared at him as if he were a phenomenon unexpectedly revealed to her gaze. It must have been, stammered Mr. Gilchrist, Suetonius, I think, or the Chevalier de Boufflaire. I'm sure that was it, Mrs. Basine agreed. I must get that to read. The judge frowned disapprovingly upon the elder Gilchrist. He resented readers. Culture was a state of soul acquired by being a gentleman, not by reading books. He resented also the impression Aubrey had left during the annexation discussion. As a matter of fact, he felt sleepy the result of the food he had eaten, and he was automatically seeking for some occasion which would warrant an expression of dignity or resentment or anything in which he might hide his heaviness of spirit. The sight of his daughter regarding Aubrey with a sweet, prim attentiveness supplied him with what he desired. The idea of Henrietta marrying that fool was annoying. Old Gilchrist was a sly dog, and his wife a difficult woman. He would forbid the thing. It might hurt Henrietta for a time, but he knew what was good for her. A mere story writer had no real standing in the community, no future. Whereas Basine, he lowered his eyes and glowered at his plate. Nice young man, honorable 
and full of promise, promise. End of chapter 8 Recording by Roger Moline